0: Between now and probably the early part of December, we're going to be looking at various uh, aspects of the idea in the Bible of Jesus ascending into heaven. Uh, I was chatting to somebody, uh, in fact it was Richard uh, Underwood... Uh, Some of you were here on the uh, Wednesday evening a couple of weeks ago when Richard was able to speak, part of the FIEC uh, gathering. And uh, he asked me where we were up to, what we were were working through on a Sunday. I said, We just started uh, a series on the Ascension. He said, That's really interesting. Uh, He said, I think it's one of the most uh, underthought, underdeveloped ideas. We don't think about it very often. Uh, I think he's really true. It's, it's right that I think he's, he's absolutely spot on. We don't think about the ascension very often. We kind of think that um, the work of Jesus we see in the Gospels. Uh, in fact, the Gospels um, generally, the real kind of focus of the ascension narrative is at the beginning of Acts primarily. Um, we kind of think of the Gospels as Jesus' life and then somehow he's got to get back to heaven. Somehow that's what it's all about. Jesus came into this world. That's revealed in the Gospels. He came as the, uh, as the Gospel uh, accounts claim that miraculous uh, birth uh, of a virgin. He comes into this world. Somehow he's got to get from this world back to heaven. Uh, and the ascension is just that final means. Uh, I think really uh, we, do, we miss so much of the focus of the message of the Bible when we think of the idea that the ascension is just Jesus getting back to heaven. uh, We limit, we we actually say that the work of Jesus is all about while he was here and then we say that's it. Uh, And I think really what we need to do is reclaim, recover the essential elements of what it really means for Jesus to be ascended. Let me ask you a question. What's Jesus doing right now? Right now? What's your thoughts? Yep. I'll not pause too long because might, we might end up with a flip chart out and we'll start writing them all up. Um, what's he doing now? We kind of think sometimes the idea that Jesus is here for that, uh, those years of ministry, he returns to heaven and he's just sat waiting. Uh, According to Revelation, there's going to come a point where this created order ends and then he returns. Is he just sat waiting in heaven for that moment when he returns? Is that what it's all about or is there more? There's so much more. And it's essential that we get a grip on it. It's essential that we understand it. Because I want to suggest that many of our challenges, many of the concerns and the issues that we have are because we haven't really got to grips with the hope of Jesus ascended. We live as though we're disconnected, as though He's not active now. And if we understood exactly how He is active, I think it can be a great source of help and encouragement to us. Uh, This afternoon, we're looking at the idea of, um, really, there's three aspects that we want to cover over these next few weeks in different ways. We're looking over the next couple of weeks, the idea of Jesus as the ascended priest, okay? The ascended priest. It's probably one of the most uh, covered songs, uh, apparently. Uh, It was originally by Bill Withers, We All Need Somebody to Lean On. You know that song? Um, It's been covered by everybody from seal to glee. So as soon as you mention glee, I know it's relatively current. Uh, If you don't know what glee is all about, um, ask someone else, because I haven't got a clue. We all need somebody to lean on. There is a sense in which, in our, our understanding of what we are as people that that resonates, that song. I think that, you know, many of the songs that we see written just touch little buttons in our, in our identity as human beings and they, they really make us think, yeah, I, there are many times, I might not like to admit it, I might l- not like to recognize it, but I do need somebody to lean on. I cannot get through uh, by myself, um, whether it's that idea that we need somebody to go for us We need somebody to be something for us, to do something for us, to say something for us. We need somebody, very often in experiences of life, to stand for us. Whether it's, you know, as siblings, as you're kind of growing up, and you decide that you, you want to ask... Uh, one of your parents something and one will say, well, you go and ask, you go go and ask. They'll say yes to you. Uh, So you get kind of shoved in in front of your parents as the one who the the kids think they'll say yes to you, so we'll get what we want. That's standing at whether we need that or whether we need somebody to stand before us or for us in a court of law. You know, two extremes one nothing, one absolutely critical. There are many aspects when we need somebody to stand for us. The ascension carries the basic idea which we're going to think about that Jesus stands for us as the ascended priest. Now, if we revert if we kind of you know shy away from the idea that there are times when we need somebody to stand for us just in this world as a song then our basic human character and nature works against the idea that we need somebody to stand for us before god but that's precisely what we need we need someone to stand for us. Look at the way the writer to the Hebrews describes it. We're going to be working through this. This is really kind of complex text uh, and I'd encourage you, make a note of it. Hebrews chapter 9, 1 to 15. Go away and have another read of it. We're not going to be picking through all of the complex language here, but if we can get a basic idea, we can understand a huge connection that the Bible is making here. Hebrews is a New Testament book. It's written after Jesus has returned to heaven, and the writer in Hebrews is connecting the events in the life of Jesus to what has been going on for the Jewish people for hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus. That's really important. That that's what the Hebrew write, the writer to the Hebrews is doing. He's using the life of Jesus, and he's saying the life of Jesus is connected. In fact, it's more than connected. It is the fulfilment of everything that has gone before. When we look at the whole of the Old Testament and all of the priest idea, everything that's the priest idea is preparing for this. We're going to see three things. We're going to see that it's the real thing. We're going to see that it's the current thing. And we're going to see that it's the comprehensive thing. They're the three things that we're going to see this afternoon. So the first thing that we're going to see is it's the real thing. How do you prepare a world for Jesus? I'm not talking about how do you prepare an individual, I'm asking you, how do you prepare the whole of humanity for the coming of Jesus? How do you make ready? Well, the Bible tells us in some ways that what what God did was he prepared us for Jesus through prophet called John the Baptist. He came just before Jesus. In fact, he's the most remarkable prophet because he was the one who was actually able to say, there is the Lamb of God. You know, all of the other prophets right the way through the Old Testament who were preparing for Jesus, they were saying again and again, there's going to be one who's going to be coming. Uh, and they were always pointing forward in time they were always expecting uh, and pointing towards something that is going to happen somewhere out there in exactly the same way as uh, as we proclaim the message of the bible we are saying somewhere out there jesus is going to come into this world again he's going to return If you like, the prophets of old were saying somewhere out there, Jesus is going to uh, come into this world. They didn't call him Jesus. They called him the Messiah, the promised one, the one that is anticipated. All sorts of different descriptions for the one that God was preparing the world for. John the Baptist was the one who was able to say, there, that one, over there, walking across along that pathway... That is the one that everyone back there has been preparing for. That's what's unique about John the Baptist. But is that all that God did? Was said, be ready for. Do you know what he did? He created a whole uh, nation. He formed a nation out of nothing. He created a system. He created temples. He created structures. He created a whole mass of religious observance, it was called the priestly system, in preparation for Jesus. It's as though he was saying to the world, you need to be ready for Jesus. So let me take you through exercises. You know, If you're learning various skills or activities, you might carry out certain exercises because those exercises prepare you to be ready for the real thing. The exercises of the Old Testament, the priestly system, is getting you ready for the real thing. Look at what we see in verse 7. We see in verse 7 this, "...but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood which he offered for himself and for the sins of the the people had committed in ignorance." So here we've got this little sentence which really sums up everything that's gone before. I'm going to a quick whistle-stop tour of what's gone before. What the Hebrew writer is saying is, you need to understand what happened once a year. There are all sorts of uh, sacrifices that went on in the whole of the, uh, the Jewish people's life. It happened in the tabernacle first, and then it happened in the temple. When the temple was destroyed and the temple was rebuilt, it started again. There were were sacrifices going on. But once a year, the priest got ready. The priest prepared and there was a special sacrifice which carried out. And once a year, the priest went into the most holy place. In your minds, imagine squares. Bigger squares and bigger squares and bigger squares. Right at the very center, in both the tabernacle and the first and the second temple, is the most holy place. You don't go in there. If you go into there, you die. We see that account where there were those who went in and approached there without the correct and acceptable way of approaching, and in taking it upon themselves to approach there, they died. In other words, to get to that very central place, there was an acceptable way to get in there. What's in there? What's in a place that is so kind of cut off from humanity a place that is so dangerous for ordinary human beings what's there what's there is the holy presence of God representative in this world Right when they built the tabernacle, there was a cloud that descended and it it kind of covered. And it was God saying, I will be with my people. And symbolically, of course you can't keep God in a box. Symbolically, I will represent my presence with the people in this central place. Now the priest, once a year, he did this. There was a special sacrifice system, special cleansing system, which we won't go into. Uh, We haven't got time to go into. But having gone through all of that, having made the sacrifice, carrying the blood of that sacrifice on him and on the people who were left outside, he went into that holy place. He went in and he didn't die. He came back out. What is that all about? Why did, why did they do that for hundreds of years? <laughs> why? Verse 7 tells us. He did it once a year. He did it with blood. So that he could go in as though he hadn't sinned. And as though the people hadn't sinned. That's another way of reading verse 7. See the way verse 7 he goes in. Once a year. Never without blood. In other words he went with blood. uh, Which he offered for himself. And for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. He goes in. Having made a sacrifice. Into the presence of of God, and He lives. In other words, God is saying, He's saying for hundreds and hundreds of years, it is possible to be in my presence as long as you are cleansed, as long as you are right, as long as payment has been made. Verse 9 goes on to say, gives us a kind of an explanation. This is an illustration, a picture. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings. External regulations applying until the time of the new order. In other words, what happened? Every year they went through the same routine. Every year they did it again and again and again and again. Just reminding themselves, get this picture drilled into your mind. Get it fixed. Because to get into the presence of God, you need to make the payment with blood And if you are accepted, you can be with me. The sacrifice was interesting because the sacrifice marked both the priest and marked the people. He sprinkled the people and he covered himself or sprinkled himself. In other words, that priest who went into that holy place was connected with the people who were still outside by the blood. But it happened again and again and again. Jesus is the real deal. He's the real thing. He's the real priest. Look at what it says. This is an illustration for the present time. There is going to come a time, in other words, when a new priest will go into the presence of God, go into the presence of God once. And it will be the end of all of the other stuff. What happens with Jesus? We've been looking at this over these past few weeks. What he actually does is in some incredible beyond our understanding kind of way, he moves from what we see contained only in this world into the presence of God. He enters heaven. Heaven. In other words, if we thought the holy place was really important in the temple, it was only a picture for a moment when Jesus enters heaven. When he goes into the presence of God. How could he do that? How was he able to do that? What's the requirement? There's got to be blood that makes the payment. Did Jesus sacrifice a lamb before he went in? No. He was the lamb that was sacrificed. He was the lamb that was both the priest marked by that blood, but the blood that marked him was his own. Isn't that amazing? So there was blood for Jesus to be able to go into the presence of God, but it was his own. And then the remarkable thing is, His going into the presence of God does exactly the same for the people who are outside. For the people outside in the Old Testament, the priest going into the presence of God and them being marked by the shed blood meant that's great news. It means that if the priest can go in, then we're going to be accepted if we're marked by that blood. That is exactly what it means with Jesus. He goes into the presence of His Father carrying the mark of His blood and yet at the same time marking His people with His blood so that that ascended priest becomes the priest that is relevant for us today. Now just think about that. What the Bible is claiming there is that for hundreds of and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years god was giving us a message in the sacrifice system that was all about jesus three of the gospel accounts record this with a loud cry jesus breathed his last the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom which curtain The curtain into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, the curtain that previously had been the separation is ripped. In other words, it's saying, I am the ultimate final priest. Done it, completed it. Further than that, he says, I'm the current priest. Look at verse 7, only the high priest entered the inner room and that once a year. It says only once a year, but for hundreds of years, that's lots and lots and lots of only once a year, isn't it? But it's current because of verse 11. When Jesus Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more f- perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not part of this creation. That's a bit confusing, isn't it? In other words, Jesus didn't enter into a tabernacle which was a curtain. It wasn't a curtain with w- a walls, with a curtain and an opening. And it, That's not the tabernacle that He went through. It wasn't a tabernacle that was created It was a tabernacle, which was the doorway, if you like, or the curtain or the opening that connected and separated the cosmic reality of heaven and the created reality of this world. In other words, the tabernacle and the temple, in a way, represented far more than just uh, the sacrifice system. It represented what we can see and what we can't see. All of the people stayed outside in the bit that they could see. They walked around the courts, they walked around the inner, inner temples and those various areas inside. That's where they could go, that's where they could see. They couldn't see in the holy place. Where do you and I live? We live in the bit that we can see, don't we? We live in the bit that is created. But there's a curtain, if you like. Where is heaven? Where's heaven? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Where is heaven? We kind of think heaven is... Was one of the Russian astronauts went out into, into space, didn't he? And he said, well, I've been out there uh, and I've looked everywhere and I can't see heaven. As if kind of that trumps the whole of the message of the Bible. Uh, I think that that was, the Bible says that God laughs at the foolishness of men. I think he would have been roaring with laughter at that comment. The idea that somehow if we go out into space because we've got this idea that if I go up there, I might be able to see heaven. God would have been roaring with laughter at the stupidity of such a comment. Where is heaven? Heaven is in some way curtained from us. Hidden from us. The presence of God is not outside of the galaxy. (laughs) It's in a different place. Hidden from us. And yet that's where Jesus entered. What was he doing? What was the priest doing? who's doing work in that temple, in that holy place, on behalf of the people. It's what Jesus is doing. He's in that holy place. He's gone beyond the curtain. In other words, he's hidden from us. We can't see him, but we know he's there. The garments of the the priestly garments and the, the, the writings outside of the Bible indicate that they knew that the priest was in there because they could hear the bells on his tunic, tinkling, tied a rope around him, according to the Midrash, to pull him out just in case he died in the presence of God. Because they couldn't go in to get him because he, they'd die as well. So the, the, the history has it that they tied a rope around his waist so that if he collapsed in the presence of God, they could draw him back out because they couldn't go in. They knew he was there. You know, the Holy Spirit in a sense is like the tinkling of the bells on the garment of our great high priest. It's the assurance that we know that Jesus is there. It's the conveying of that message to you and to me that we know our priest is working for us right now. Because His presence is current you know the priest that we don't read how long the priest was in the holy place but he was in the presence of God for a period of time in exactly the same way Jesus is in the presence of God for a period of time up to now it's 2000 and so years long in our time It's like twinkling of an eye to God (laughs) who's outside of time. But if we think about it in that terms, there's, there's a period where the priest is behind the curtain. But he's present now. But even more than that, if that priestly work is real, if it's current, it's also comprehensive it's comprehensive why did the priest in the Old Testament actually go in once a year we're told in this he went in once a year for the sins the people had committed in ignorance (laughs) wow why why that well actually because if you read Leviticus there is just a massive list of all of the ways in which you can go to the priest have a sacrifice made so that any sin that you are conscious that you have committed you can go to the priest and it can be resolved through sacrifice in other words apart from the idea that God is saying it always takes sacrifice for sin to be dealt with. It's saying as well that there are many things that we're conscious of. But there are also things that we are not conscious of. In other words, sin is not... Sometimes we have the idea that sin is just those kind of conscious things that we do. You know, the things that we do, the things that we say, it's way deeper. Way deeper than that. If in the Old Testament there was the necessity for us to be resolved of sins that we were ignorant of committing, then it tells us that sin is more than just the things we do, it's a condition, it's a reality of our existence. Look at what we read here in verse 14. If that happened once a year for all of the things that we were not conscious of, that we were ignorant of, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences... From acts that lead to death. Cleanse our consciences. If the old picture that happened again and again and again was just, if you like, connecting the events of life here, the the problem of our sin with the sacrificial system just in this world, through the presence of God in the temple, there is a way greater connection that appears through Jesus. Jesus, our great high priest, is in the real presence of God, in the temple, dealing with the way deeper issue of our very being and condition. Our conscience the Bible describes it as. I think when the Bible uses the words conscience, it's bigger than our idea of conscience. We use the word conscience and we have the Jiminy Cricket kind of idea on our, on our minds, don't we? You know, that little kind of uh, the cricket on our shoulder that keeps on telling us all of the problems that we have. Actually, conscience, I, from the Bible perspective, is bigger than that. It's bigger. It's that sense of undoing. That sense of consciousness that we are not what we need to be, ought to be. Why do we feel guilty? Why do we have an issue of conscience when we can't even put our finger on why? Just a sense of problem. Because, because sin is bigger Than the little the things that we do. It's a problem of our being. And look what this says. Our great high priest, who we can lean on, who we can lean on, who can go there for us, who can be there for us, who can say that for us, cleanses us from the deeper issue of our condition. And you see the way it's phrased? Cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death. In other words, Jesus said this. There's a problem in the heart which explodes out into issues of action and thought. In other words, the condition of the human heart is the problem. Now, you might be thinking... I believe in Jesus. I I believe and I have hope in that. But the reality is that I keep on having problems. I keep on doing this. I keep on saying that. I keep on acting in this way and that way. The great message of our great high priest is he doesn't deal with the external issues and forget about the deeper issue. He starts at the heart. He cleanses our conscience as an absolute. We might not feel it. We might not see it. At times, we might not act it. But the reality is, He cleanses us. Our conscience is clean when our acts at times still continue to fail. That 's great news. our consciences are cleansed. look at the way it put the, the, the way this is put though He cleanses our conscience from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Serving is just such a, a counter idea for us to even think about the idea of serving God. It immediately kind of thinks of enslavement and, and bondage and all of that kind of thing. It's just, it's sad that that word conjures up those kind of ideas. What the Bible is saying is that we are freed and we are liberated to respond appropriately to God. We are freed and liberated from all of those things that stop us able to be what we ought to be and want to be and can be and should be before Him. We're freed to be that. Freed to serve. Freed to come into His presence. That's what a high priest does actually. If you look at what the priest does, he goes in to serve in the inner place. If Jesus is the one who serves the Father in this world, he isn't pushed down, he isn't subdued, he isn't crushed by his Father. Well, in his servanthood he isn't. He, He loves the idea. He thrives on the idea of serving his Father we kind of resonate with this on occasions. Just think of your dream job. The one that you would just absolutely love to do. If I could just do that, it would be fantastic. I would go into work loving my job every single day. There isn't a job like that, by the way. (laughs) In this world, as soon as you start it, you'll find all of the kind of reasons why it's not the job that you'd hoped it to be. But there's part of us that just absolutely would love the idea of the dream job. Why? Because it is satisfying, because it's fulfilling, because it gives us a sense of purpose. What are we doing in that dream job? We're serving, aren't we? It's just that we love the idea of that that's what jesus ascended presence with god his father opens up for us the idea that our lives might be filled with the best thing in this whole world which is serving god so just giving ourselves to the most fulfilling and satisfying and thrilling and exciting potential of what it means to be a human being it's what we're made for it's what we're designed for it's what the only thing actually that we will ultimately find fulfillment in it's in serving God so every time we read that word serve God just think Stop for a moment when you, when you feel switched off by it and just think, imagine my dream job, how much I would love getting up for that. Now multiply it by infinity. <laughs> That's what it is to serve God. To be welcomed into His court. What a great privilege to know that our priest is ascended.